Welcome to another edition of the College Faith Podcast, sponsored by Global Scholars. This is Stan Wallace, your host, and my guest today is Jonathan Morrow. Jonathan's been equipping students and parents in biblical worldview, apologetics, and culture for over 16 years, and he's passionate about seeing a new generation build a lasting faith. He holds graduate degrees in Christian thought and is currently the Director of Cultural Engagement and Student Discipleship at the Impact 360 Institute, as well as an adjunct professor of apologetics at Biola University. Jonathan's authored several books, including Welcome to College, Questioning the Bible, and Is God Just a Human Invention? His book Welcome to College is probably the best book I've seen to help students flourish during their university years. So I've invited him to discuss some of the ideas in his book with me today. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. I've been looking forward to this. I have too. I have really enjoyed your book, Welcome to College. And so I've been looking forward to having you on to talk a little bit about some of the uh, issues you raise in there that are really helpful, I think, to students and their parents as they move into the college years. So let me just start by asking you how you got interested in this topic in the first place. Yeah, part of that's just my story. And so Welcome to College really kind of came out of me thinking about what does it mean to follow Jesus. I, I came to Christ at 17. A buddy of mine had been praying for me. I'm, I made his top five most wanted list. And so he was <laughs> praying, went to a camp, eventually shared the gospel with me that fall. Um, he wrote a letter to me, never got to me. So we ended up going to have, grab, grab some food. Wow. That was the first time I understood the gospel at 17 as a junior, even though I'd been confirmed in the Episcopal Church, baptized in the Catholic Church. I had no idea what to memorize the Nicene Creed, but no idea what the gospel really wow. was. And so, so that began my junior year of high school. And so right away, people began to invest in my life, uh, disciplers and mentors and youth group. And then in college, I got involved with Camps Crusade, with crew, which was amazing. But then as I got through the end of the college years, I began going, okay, what's everything I wish I would have known that somebody would have told me on the way into the college years? Everything practically, and I know we'll dive into particulars as we go, but everything from the big questions of life, like, yeah. does God exist and the problem of evil and how can Jesus be the only way or can you trust the Bible? All those kind of questions, but also how do you know stuff? But then like, how do you study and, and what does dating look like? And like, what is, you know, how do you figure out kind of your calling in life and all of God's will? So I was like, okay, what if I get the chance someday to try to put all that in one place? And by God's grace, I did. Um, and so that became welcome to college because I love working with students. That's what I do now. Um, I, I'm the director of cultural engagement and student discipleship for Impact 360. Uh, so we teach students year round through summer camps, nine month gap year, reinitiative during the college year. I mean, I love being with students because there's such a critical uh, time. Um, and if you're a student watching this, like these these years are vital uh, for you exploring and thinking about lots of different big questions, choices, life trajectories. And I want to help students follow Jesus well with confidence and really build a strong and lasting and a, and a multiplying faith beyond those years. So that mm. in a nutshell is kind of why I wrote Welcome to College. Yeah, that's great. That's great. And as you just mentioned before we started the the conversation, uh, you come out with a second edition, and I suspect yes. that was because after the first edition, the landscape changed somewhat. 
on the college campus. There, there are some different issues. So uh, bring me up to date from the first edition now to the second edition. What are the biggest changes you're seeing and how did you uh, in, include that in the second edition? Yeah, for sure. And so was really encouraged to see how popular Welcome to College was with students and parents and then youth pastors and churches would give them away and stuff like that. And then the publisher's like, hey, we need to do another round uh, of this. And I was like, yeah, let's do it. But we also need to update some key things, especially around the sexuality and gender conversation, mm. around technology, um, mm-hmm. different pieces of that in terms of what is um, justice and what does that look like and like all of those big themes, like there's a lot of timeless things in there, but there's also just how fast culture has moved where students are just day in and day out diving into particular challenges around um, everything from progressive Christianity to what counts as knowledge to who gets to decide truth to what is gender and, and reality and sexuality and mm-hmm. what does that look like to pursue holiness in the midst of all that? How do I love my friends well? Right. So all of those things. Um, and and more kind of baked into that second pass and update into welcome to college. And I know we can get into particulars as, as you want, but that there was a bunch of different things we we wanted to update um, in regards to kind of the reality of what students are facing on a college campus. Yeah. So what do you think the biggest challenges are? You've named a yeah. number of things. What what's the top top three? Yeah. Yeah. So I'll do that. I mean, I may even I may even um, double click on that to go out to five. Sure. Because I think there's about five things right now. Okay. That are uh, working through and kind of we can we can kind of interact. I'll throw out one and then we can talk about it and then second one, whatever. But mm-hmm. the first one that students have to be aware of today, I mean, if you're watching this uh, as a student, whether uh, you are in the high school years, college years, grad school years, wherever you're at, is we live in an era of digital distraction and saturation, digital distraction and saturation. And after kind of 2020 and COVID and all that stuff, we all are more distracted than ever with devices and everything kind of went more digital, even than it already was for older generations, but especially for you and Gen Z, like that is that is front and center. And so from a discipleship perspective, it's really important that you figure out what is digital discipleship to the Lord Jesus look like? How do you submit this device to his lordship? And what does that look like? Because it's always forming us, um, as my friend David Kenneman and the president of Barna Group likes to say, screens disciple. And so mm. what we're consuming is what is, is shaping and forming us. And so not only the content, but then physiologically, it's doing things to our brains that we didn't really sign up for from a distraction standpoint, from a even a long-term uh, standpoint of anxiety, depression, suicidal ideation, a lot of those kind of things, isolation. There's a lot of things that go with it, wholly apart from the content, it's shaping us in profound ways. And so the first thing that's kind of the backdrop for the five challenges that that we can kind of maybe walk through that I think students are having to navigate right now, especially if they're wanting to follow Jesus, is first the digital distraction and saturation, because content is everywhere. It's always clamoring for your attention. You've got to figure out how to bring that into submission to you and not the other way around. Uh, one of those practical tips would be notifications. You don't need all the notifications on. Precious few. Mm-hmm. That would be a place. That's like the hot donut sign. If you've ever been to a Krispy Kreme, <laughs> like you see those at night, they're flashing there. I remember there's one in Knoxville, Tennessee. It was like, oh, yeah. right. So that's, it's like clamoring for your attention. Well, it takes you 20 to 25 minutes to get back in the flow, neurologically speaking, or brain, brain flow wise, when you're interrupted. 
So if we're constantly interrupted, a good way to kind of check this for you and just for all of us is screen time is important to look at, but honestly, a more important metric in both Androids and iPhones have this are the pickups. The number of times you can go into settings and click down and look at the number of times you've picked up your device. Hmm. That will tell you how many times you have interrupted yourself. And if you divide that by the number of waking hours, that'll give you a little bit of an average of like, okay, I'm literally deliberately choosing to interrupt myself this number of times a day. Interesting. Yeah. And so that'll, that'll just play into the focus thing. So if we're wanting to grow as a follower of Jesus, if we're wanting to learn or think or focus, the first thing we have to do is kind of get the digital distraction under, under control because we've kind of reached a saturation point. So if you take a sponge, pour liquid into it and it's full, you can't pour more liquid into it, just not going to hold it. And so that's in many ways kind of where we're all at, but especially students, uh, you're you're there right now because that's just part of your world that you've never known any different. So that'd be the first one. Mm. Okay. Second. So then the reality is, okay, these other ones all kind of build on one another. The first one is scientism. Now I'll I'll unpack that, but the big thing is what counts as knowledge and who gets to decide? Right. So if our culture largely says in the background, now you may have never even heard that word before, but if you listen to this podcast, you probably have heard it somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. But think about it this way. If our culture says science is the only way we know things, or at least the best way we know things, then guess what? If the Bible talks about morality, history, and spirituality, guess what's not going to count as knowledge? Mm-hmm. And that's going to be a lot of the big topics that the Bible deals with. So Christianity is a knowledge tradition. So, so there, there's a there's a phrase that's come up before. It's a great phrase. Define it for our listeners again. Knowledge tradition versus belief tradition. Yeah. So knowledge tradition means I can actually not just believe that Christianity is true, but actually know that it is true. And I can have knowledge of the moral and spiritual life, meaning I can know what's good. I can know that I have salvation in Christ. I can know my identity in Christ. It's not just that I hope about that or I believe about that or I've got strong feelings about that or I worship you know, had we've got music around it or whatever, as good as all those things are, knowledge is what authorizes you to act. And so knowledge brings confidence. And so the reality is, if we don't think we can know stuff that the Bible assumes we can know, we're immediately going to be in conflict. Mm-hmm. And it'll remove our confidence. And so there's a lot we can say about scientism, but the basic idea is if knowledge goes away or is limited to the hard sciences, until it's not, when we talk about the gender and sexuality conversation, even that kind of takes a backseat. Then you move to your second challenge, which is around um, the next challenge, which is relativism. Because then morality is up for grabs. It's true for you, but not for me. It's follow your heart. It's you do you. And it's basically at that point, everything's up for grabs. And the challenge there is, and, and back to our, even our earlier point about the knowledge is, you know, the Bible shows up around 2,000 or so words that have knowledge cognates or different synonyms or things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the number, number of times it shows in the Bible, about 500 or so, or a little bit less of faith words. Faith is vitally important. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. But what kind of faith, right? It's a biblical faith. And so knowledge is vital. When you say a biblical faith, let's get clear, a faith that's based on knowledge of certain truths. Yeah. So active, like an active trust and what you have good reason to believe is true. Mm-hmm. And so you have this idea where you're trusting something. And, and I'm sure you've talked about this before. A lot of people have this misconception that the more your faith increases, the less you need to know. 
or the more mm-hmm. you know, the less you need faith. Mm-hmm. It's actually not true. The more you know, the more you can exercise faith on what you know. Right. And that's the vital thing for everyone to understand. That's why ignorance is not a spiritual virtue. Um, <laughs> we, we want to know things. Now, humility comes with that. That is a virtue. But it's not better for us to know less. Um, and and not have knowledge and confidence and things like that as followers of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so if we end up with a space where it's true for you, but not for me, and that's where college campuses are today, then what I talk about is the difference between objective and subjective truth. How do you know what's true? Christianity claims to be true, not just um, one among many or any of those kind of things. Actually, you can know it to be true. But our culture and your campus and your friends are going to say, not only can you not know it, but truth is up for grabs. It's true for you, but not for me. And most Christians, unless they've been equipped out of it, are Christian relativists, meaning they've grown up maybe in the Bible Belt or in America or Christianity, kind of mom and dad are Christian. But then what happens is they go, well, that that Christian message and that sermon is true for me, not true for everyone, not true for everybody else, not true for my friends. My mm-hmm. mo- a Muslim friend, he's got his own truth. My Buddhist friend, he's got his own truth. My Mormon friend, he's got his own truth. And so when you lose knowledge, truth falls pretty quickly after it into that moral spiritual relativism. Of course, one great question to ask as as you're a student is, what happens when your truth bumps into my truth? Like, how do we decide that about stuff that we deeply care about around issues that matter? And so what you're going to find out pretty quickly is where the conversation goes next, which is the third challenge. So let me let me jump in and just name a threefold distinction that's at the heart of what you're saying, and uh, you've alluded to it, but I want to make it explicit. So usually when the term relativism is used, we think of moral relativism. So what I do is right or wrong in, mm-hmm. in light of my choices and my desires, but you're broadening relativism to include spiritual relativism, that spiritual truth, quote unquote, is relative to the person. Or maybe mm-hmm. it could be the culture, but but even more broadly, not only spiritual knowledge but all knowledge is relative to the individual. In other words, technically, ontological relativism, reality is relative, and and that's ultimately the problem writ large, right? That's the yeah. largest scale way relativism is in our culture on our campuses, and and needs to be identified first, and then thought well about for the Christian, right? No, that's good. That's good insight because especially, you know, as if you're 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 watching this and you're still you're thinking about these questions as a student, you know, every question that matters, you're gonna have to figure out can people know stuff about it or not? And is it true or not? And in a college environment, people are either gonna play language games, they're gonna play around with words. Words don't really refer to reality anymore, uh, like you're talking about, mm-hmm. or you're you're gonna be in a situation where it's just for my community, or we've agreed on the definition, or whatever. But none of that's gonna gonna at the end of the day be what we all mean by true, and what the Bible means by true or knowledge. Mm-hmm. And it's just really important to see that distinction. So that's that's a good word. So if you lose knowledge, and you get into kind of a relativism, kind of a moral, spiritual, kind of broadly understood, kind of all that's up for grabs, then what are you left with? Well, you're left with power. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's where we're at right now. So knowledge has gone away. Moral, spiritual truth are completely up for grabs. And the only way to settle that is what I call tribalism. So you go from scientism to relativism to tribalism. And so what happens there is that's just an us versus them culture. We see it everywhere, all around us, social media, 
Mm. all the things. Nobody tries to persuade anyone anymore of what's true. Mm -hmm. You align with somebody, you get allies, and then you try to impose your will. So therefore, the cancel culture on all sides, mm -hmm. if you disagree, just cancel them. It's like, well, maybe we ought to talk about that. Maybe we ought to have the hard conversation. Maybe it's worth thinking about. And I'm increasingly seeing this, not only do we see it in the, in the broader culture, which in some ways one would expect to see that. Unfortunately, I'm seeing it more and more in, in the church where people are breaking up into their own little tribes and they're not really trying to talk or explore different viewpoints or, okay, how central is this? It's pretty much, you see a lot of people canceling each other within Christendom and, and in the church and different denominations. Um, now, eventually what I'm not talking about is it doesn't mean that we don't need to call out error or or speak to issues that aren't true, but there's this, this lack of engagement. Mm -hmm. And I think the church is not modeling always well um, in Christian leaders uh, certainly on social media and those kind of things, which certainly isn't every every leader in the church by by any stretch, because there's so many faithful men and women who are doing amazing work. But we see tribalism. Probably the clearest way to see this was the um, origin of the acronym that's so famous right now that everyone knows, the LGBTQIA plus acronym. That is a textbook understanding of how tribalism works, because they're not trying to make an argument anymore. They're not trying to make a case. Uh, for what's true or false, good or bad, healthy or flourishing or whatever. No, they've aligned these different different groups against another person, another group, another institution to try to take that down. But the problem is they're fundamentally at odds, right? The L and the T are fundamentally at odds. The, the lesbian thinks, well, biological reality is real. It's a thing. And the trans individual says, no, it's not a thing. And so therefore, right now in that acronym, if you were going to draw it out, all those letters would not be the same font size. Like the L and the B might be 12-point font, but by the time you get to the T, that's going to be like a 40-point or a 200-point font because the T is the biggest letter in that acronym from a power influence standpoint culturally right now. Mm. So that's an alliance, but eventually the T and the L are going to fight that thing out once they take down whoever they're after. So again, that's just one example of how tribalism works. We also see this with secular social justice and a lot of the conversations around that. That's in the air we breathe. And so as a student, you just need to be aware that knowledge has kind of been belittled or at least reduced to the hard sciences. Truth has kind of gone away to relativism. And, and it's like, no, it's just true for you. And so now power is the currency of the day, and that's through alliances. And so that's an us versus them dynamic. So mm. those three things together kind of give a snapshot of kind of how we got where we're at and kind of why things are kind of feeling and looking the way they do. Mm. Oh, it's so, so helpful. And a footnote, you know, there's a saying that's been around forever, ideas matter. And uh, you know, this is just a classic case of ideas that were discussed mostly in universities about a century ago. Uh, now are just taken by the man on the street, right? Or the student on the mm -hmm. campus. I'm thinking of Nietzsche's idea of will to power. And it's all about power plays. Absolutely. Uh, because there is no longer anything objective. And uh, we're just seeing it play out now in the broader culture, uh, which is for students listening. Another reason is Christians, it's important to love God with the mind mm -hmm. and to think critically about things that are being presented in class and to ask, is this true? How do I know it's true? What are the arguments that are given against it? Are they sound and valid arguments, or are they fallacious in some way? To understand all those things uh, is illustrated by the fact that we're at this point in history dealing with these issues in the way that you've described. 
somewhat because I I want to suggest we as believers haven't done our work to love God with our mind, to think his thoughts after him, to analyze and critique claims being made that now have uh, gotten fully out of the gate and they're running full, full, full steam, right? Oh, yeah. And they're, they're everywhere. And so part of your discipleship and part of my discipleship is loving God with our minds and thinking God's thoughts after him and the life of the mind. That doesn't mean you need to have a PhD. It doesn't mean you need to be a nuclear physicist. But it does mean that God's given you certain gifts and talents and abilities. So you want to steward those to his glory. And you are capable of, I just want to say that, you know, students, you are capable of far more than our culture gives you credit for in terms of thinking and understanding. Um, and it just takes a little bit of time. I mean, I see this happen in Impact 360 with our students, um, like during our high school summer experiences, one and two week apologetics, worldview training, discipleship training, propel and immersion. I see students come in going, man, the first day it was really hard to track and think about these topics. Mm. But by day four or five, man, this is fun. I never thought that I could think about this this way or understand or go engage because we we take them to engage. It's, it's a blast. So if you're a high school, by the way, a high schooler is thinking about this, check out impact360.org. You can learn more about some of the student experiences. But Great. I'll put that in the show notes so it's easy to find. Perfect. Yeah. Impact360.org. And so the, the bottom line, though, is there's some training that can happen and then we can it becomes possible. Or if you're working out, you're like, man, five weeks ago, I couldn't do this, but today I can, you know, mm -hmm. and so just it just has to be a little bit more. So don't don't overwhelm yourself. You don't have to, you know, master the all of the history of ideas in, in, in a week. <laughs> but you can you can pick one thing to grow mm -hmm. in, mm -hmm. you know, and it'll, it'll be valuable to you because that's a real form of spiritual warfare is, is, is engaging ideas that are raised up against the knowledge of God. And that's vital, vital mm -hmm. for us to understand. Mm -hmm. So if, if knowledge goes away and scientism peace and relativism rules the day until power and the tribalism rules the day, then culturally, there's a couple other challenges. The two other ones, one's kind of broadly cultural and one's kind of more church related. The first one is going to be sexual revolution 2.0. And that's really what we're seeing in terms of all of those ideas coming to fruition around what counts as gender, uh, what counts as sexuality, what counts as family, what counts as marriage, what, is, what does it mean to flourish? And so all of those things are going to be front and center for you on campus. And um, if you're a parent listening to this, these are absolutely going to be involved. And it doesn't matter if it's a Christian campus or not. There are precious few universities, uh, even Christian ones, that do not have, I mean, I don't want to throw any particular ones under the bus, but basically there are wolves in sheep's clothing on all sorts of Christian campuses out there that have been historically Christian. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean you don't send your kids to a good Christian college if that's what you choose, but don't just assume that it's like set it and forget it. No, you got to, hey, tell me about your uh, sociology class. Tell me about your psychology class. Uh, tell me about your hermeneutics class, because those those issues are going to be there. And the sexuality gender conversation is front and center. And so two quick things um, that I just want to emphasize here that I think are opportunities for us as followers of Jesus. We must reframe sexuality as a discipleship issue. All right. And here's why I mean why I put it that way. I think for a long time, unintentionally, and then maybe sometimes intentionally along the way in the 90s, especially. Christians began to single out uh, kind of normal sin and abnormal sin 
Hmm. People would talk about homosexuality. Well, that's abnormal. At least heterosexual sin is still normal. No sin is normal, right? We we. And so what happened is you ended up creating an inadvertent us versus them in a category of just holiness. Because if you don't know Jesus, then the answer is Jesus first, and then sexuality and friends and everything else after that, because you're going to begin to become more like Christ. You're going to submit that. So if someone doesn't know Jesus, you don't start with sexuality issues. You start with, do you know Jesus? And are you, and what's the gospel? But if you do know Jesus and follow Jesus, then everything becomes a discipleship issue. Mm-hmm. So whether in your youth group, whether you're in a college campus, whether you're in a campus ministry, local church, the question is like, okay, um, what are you doing with your desires to submit those to the Lord Jesus Christ? So maybe some of you have same-sex desires, and you know that's not biblical or what God's good design is. So are you going to submit those to the Lord Jesus and take up your cross and carry them? Some of you is going to be like, are you stopping looking at porn? Have you stopped sleeping around with your girlfriend? Have you stopped? Like everybody's got a way to apply that if it's a holiness and discipleship category. We don't have to put it in some other category, mm-hmm. but it's important. So in some ways, what I, what I like to tell, especially youth pastors and others when they teach on this, the goal is not to be less offensive because the Bible is going to make clear truth games. The goal is to be universally offensive to everybody, right? There's always a place for us to grow and repent and submit and become more like Christ and all of that. Um, and so regardless of what you struggle with, if you're a follower of Jesus. So I think those are the categories when it comes to that. And then recognize that marriage is a good idea because it's God's idea. Husband and wife for one flesh, one union for a lifetime. That's God's idea. Sexuality is a good thing because God invented it and created it. As we talk about, it's good to be a boy because God made you a boy. And it's good to be a girl because God thought up the idea of being a girl. And those are good things. It's it's amazing we have to say those things in our culture today. but we need to say those things because that's a part of our worldview formation as well to go, you know, by God's good design, um, you're a young lady. And that includes a certain aspect of your calling that's unique. That's not for a young man. That's different. Equal before God, co-workers, co-laborers, co-heirs, equal in value and dignity, the whole thing. But biologically and by God's good design, you're different and complement one another. So those are things that we have to get back on the table in our culture today and in the way we think about discipleship and family and youth groups and things like that. So that would be, that would be one more, one more of those challenges to talk about. Really helpful to outline all that. Uh, and, and the, the book does such a good job. I just, just reread it again here to prepare. It's such a good job of drilling into a number of those issues. I appreciate the way you wrote it, which was not simplistic, but it was still accessible. Mm. And, uh, uh, so I, I appreciate the work you did to 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 find that balance, which is hard to find. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you. That's kind of, and, and welcome to college. I really tried to try to strike that balance. And the last piece, I just want to mention this. I'm sure we get to talk about some other fun stuff, but I do want students to be aware of this. The other challenge to be aware of is if you took those four other things, the scientism, the relativism, the tribalism, and the sexual revolution 2.0, and you took a quote unquote church environment who adopted all those things. Like you can't know stuff. Truth is relative. Tribalism. Mm. Sexuality is up for grabs. It's gay affirming. All those kind of things. It removes the gospel from the center of that movement, and it puts secular social justice at the center of that. Then you end up with what's called progressive Christianity. Now, there's not a church out there. It's not the first church. Not the first church of progressive Christianity, like First Baptist or First Methodist or something like that. But you'll be able to see these hallmarks if they kind of begin to undermine biblical authority, if they affirm and say what is good is is not good. For example, you know, Isaiah says, woe to those who call evil good and 
and good evil in Isaiah 520. And so as a student, you need to be aware that there may be some clever sounding arguments in some places that feel good relationally that are not teaching what is true and that are actually denying biblical authority on these issues. And you need to be aware of that, that increasingly more and more students are, are, are seeing pockets of progressive Christianity within the churches they go to um, or on campus or in ministries. And, and you just need to be discerning biblically and kind of be recognized that that is another gospel. It's another Christianity. It is, it is not, well, it's not Christianity. It's, it's, it's another kind of thing in the name of Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just need to be aware of that, that that's kind of a, a church that's kind of adopted some of those ideas and worldview along the way. We will return to the show in just a moment, but first a word from our sponsor. Guests on the College Faith Podcast often discuss how important professors are in the lives of students during these impressionable years. Christian professors are examples to both non-Christian and Christian students that a person can be educated and still follow Christ, and they can have a lifelong influence as mentors. Please consider helping equip Christian professors to make a difference on a campus near you and worldwide. To learn more, please visit www.global-scholars.org. Please also check out the other podcast Stan and Dr. J.P. Moreland do together, Thinking Christianly. Whereas this College Faith podcast focuses more on the practical questions of thriving during the college years, the Thinking Christianly podcast is all about the ideas that shape the university, students, our broader culture, and the world. Visit thinkingchristianly.org or download episodes on your favorite podcast platform. And now back to College Faith. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because I'm seeing the progressive Christianity movement take hold in, in a number of unexpected places, it seems to me. Uh, and so uh, could you could you help us uh, by naming some of the authors that are promoting this? You know, the, any movement like this has has the oracles, right? The people who write the books that everybody reads that mm-hmm. fans the flame. Who are some of the people that might be read in a youth group or in a church small group or in a campus ministry that would be taking a progressive line that students ought to be aware of? And in terms of that's their that's where they're heading and that's where they're 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 basing the arguments from. Yeah. So there's various forms of it. The writings and teachings of Richard Rohr, uh, for example, he's more of a kind of a Catholic theologian that's very new age-ish and progressive uh, Christianity in terms of how he thinks about spiritual uh, formation, the universal Christ and pluralism. It's, that's kind of a mess. Um, the late Rachel Held Evans in her books that kind of undermine kind of biblical authority. Peter Enns is probably one of the professors who's kind of fueling a lot of those kind of things. Um, your Rob Bells of the world. Um, you've got Brian McLaren's of the world. And then people who begin to follow them. Students, if you may not be even familiar with those names, but you will be familiar if you watch TikTok. There's all sorts of people who are deconstructing their faith and using that language. And a lot of those people are influencers on YouTube and on TikTok and Instagram and other places where they're kind of talking about those kind of ideas and deconstructions. Yeah, help me out on that. So I've heard uh, you know a lot of conversation about deconstructing the faith. So is that somehow tied directly to or just just happens to be also true of this movement of progressive Christianity? What's the tie, if there is any? Yeah, so someone who's done a lot of good work on this, um, Elisa Childers in her book, Another Gospel, 
she has done a great job kind of talking about this because she encountered a lot of that. She shares her story. There's two ways. So people who were in an environment that was unhealthy or toxic or even abuse, spiritual abuse, other things that are legitimate, sexual abuse, spiritual abuse, which are so tragic and heartbreaking, people come out of that and they begin to associate that with Christianity and then they try to detangle it later. That's kind of one version of it. That's more of a genuine like, okay, what was real and what wasn't? And Mm -hmm. man, how do I separate that? The second part is kind of a people who come from a maybe a little more legalistic background or something like that, and they're trying to make sense of what's Bible and what's not. Now, usually what we would say is a healthy process of learning how to walk through doubt to a stronger faith, express, I'm not sure about this, or what do I think about that? How do I grow? That's a normal part of the Christian life. Sure. Deconstruction is a, is a, is a bigger thing because it's like, let's throw off historic Christianity and let's remake Jesus and the Bible in our image with no authority and no God would approve of my sexual choices no matter what, and God made me this way. So deconstruction flows from some of the philosophical ideas, but almost culturally, it's more just, you know what, let's throw off everything that would make a claim on me as a Christian, because that's oppressive and abusive. And I'm going to now remake Christianity in a very progressive cultural way, which fits with everything around us. So it's it's complicated. You always want to interact with the person as you always do in terms of asking good questions, especially if they've been wounded or hurt um, in the process, legitimately so by people or leaders or or something like that. But in general, it's a movement around younger Christians to kind of throw everything out the window that they kind of grew up with and then replace it with kind of basically a secular progressive Christianity in its place that is not really Christian at all at the end of the day, sadly. Yes, I have read Elisa Childers' book and found that very helpful, but you brought some broader context. So thanks for outlining those five key challenges. Could you point us in the direction of somebody you think really has written a a good I don't know, article online or book or has a great podcast on digital distractions and saturation and scientism and relativism and the the tribalism we we find as a result. And then the uh, sexual revolution 2.0. Can you suggest in those five areas where to go to think and read more about those issues? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. So at the risk of, of sharing a couple, I'll share a bunch of other ones, but I, I have an article on my website, jonathanmorrow.org, which deals with a um, a lot of the biblical authority questions. And I talk about that, I do an interview with Sean McDowell on that, where we did a com- big conversation on that. So that's jonathanmorrow.org. Also at impact360.org, you'll find our Gen Z lab. So Generation Z, that's teenagers today, Gen Z lab, where it's free and has tons of resources on a lot of these topics where I do video interviews on what is the difference between social, uh, secular social justice versus biblical justice and how do we have those conversations. So a lot of those things could be resources broadly there. Great. But let me let me give you a couple of other thoughts too. Andy Crouch's daughter, I believe, wrote a book on, on TechWise. Um, and her perspective on how to how to grow in that, which I think is helpful. And then um, in terms of scientism, um, J.P. Moreland's written a fabulous book on scientism, which is great um, at a book length level. I have a chapter dealing with that in Welcome to College, if you just want the four to five page version before you go to the, the big treatment. Uh-huh. Same thing with relativism um, and truth there. I talk about that. Um, also, um, another helpful book on that is True for You But Not for Me by Paul Copan. Uh, that's really helpful. 
fuller length treatment, Greg Kokel's book, Relativism. There's a lot of good books on that, but I've got chapters that deal with those individually at chapter length in my books, Welcome to College, Questioning the Bible, things like that. In terms of the tribalism piece, Thaddeus Williams' book on pursuing justice without compromising truth is excellent. Mm. That'd be a great resource there. Um, the Sexual Revolution 2.0, there's a shorter version of Carl Truman's book on the rise and triumph of the modern self. There's actually a shorter version of that book that just came out that I forget the name of, but you can put the link to. Yep. That kind of summarizes some of the history of that. But honestly, Love Thy Body by Nancy Piercy is phenomenal on that. Mm. And then lastly, on progressive Christianity, uh, definitely check out Elisa Childers' book on Another Gospel. Also check out Sean McDowell. He's done some good work on engaging and having dialogue on his YouTube channel around some different progressive Christians and how to tackle some of those topics. And there's also articles on our website, impact360.org, that we've written on progressive Christianity. So you can just go to the media section and lots of places. There's Impact Answers short YouTube videos. So all that stuff at impact360.org and our experiences for high school students, college students, gap year, the whole the whole thing, it would be would be profitable. Perfect. Perfect. Thanks so much. When I read this book, I was impressed with the breadth of topics covered. You talk about everything from growing spiritually to managing time to dealing with peer pressure related to alcohol, dating, sex, all those issues, uh, doubts uh, that one has about their faith. Do you have any favorite chapters? Yeah, for sure. I, I think I think a couple stick out to me. Um, I definitely was on doubt mm. because that one I think sometimes we don't talk about that well, and therefore people kind of kind of suffer quietly or struggle quietly with their mm -hmm. doubts. But mm -hmm. doubts part of part of life, and we're finite, and so there's like you can't know everything about everything. So you gotta gotta learn and grow and examine. And there's a normal part of that. And so there's three kinds of doubts, and I talk about them in that chapter. There's kind of like this. If you're driving down the road and you have a check engine light come on in your car, and you're like, uh-oh, this is about to be expensive. I just don't know how expensive yet because I don't know exactly what the error code is. And so but they plug in the machine, they get to the error code, and it's like, oh, well, this is an oil change, or this is a transmission, or this is you know whatever. Those are very different problems and solutions, right? In the same way, there's three kinds of doubt. There's intellectual doubt. There's kind of emotional doubt, and then there's spiritual doubt. So I kind of unpack those and how to deal with those. None of them you want to navigate by yourself. Uh, but intellectual doubt, it's like, okay, Christians for 2,000 years have been thinking well and hard about these topics. You're not the first one who's thought about this. There's some good help out there for you to process and come to a reasonable answer on any question that you could ask, and at least give you a couple reasonable, possible answers. So the first one is just to get clear on what your doubts are and, and track them down. Like, I'm not sure how God can be good and all loving and all powerful. Okay. How do how does that make sense? Or what about Darwinian evolution or evolutionary creationism or how old is the earth or how young is it? I don't, I don't know. Well, those are good questions to wrestle with and biblically and philosophically and theologically. So there's good answers to those questions that support God's good design and creation activity and information, all that stuff, intelligent design, the whole, the whole thing. So that's intellectual. But then if you're having emotional doubt or relational doubt, a lot of times that can look like intellectual doubt, but you don't treat it the same way. Meaning reading more books isn't going to help your emotional doubt. Mm -hmm. It could be that someone has disappointed you. Somebody's maybe hurt you or broken a promise or some, maybe you're having conflict with someone and you just feel off. The evidence hasn't changed. The reality of God hasn't changed, but you, you feel different. And so there's different layers to emotional doubt. 
And sometimes our emotions can kind of take over. And so one of the most important things you can learn to do is pay attention to the kinds of emotions that you're having and then ask yourself kind of where is this coming from and kind of what is that? And, and maybe I'm in the midst of a little emotional whitewater. It's not that I need to reevaluate the Christian faith. It's that, man, you know what? If God's a person, and he is, and I have a hard time relating to people in personal relationship then maybe that's some of why I feel distant with God. Hmm. Maybe there's some growth that needs to happen there. Maybe there's, you know, if my horizontal relationships are funky and they're off, that could inform my relationship with God and how I experience him and the Holy Spirit and things like that. So that's more of an emotional doubt. And then lastly, a spiritual doubt, which really boils down to two things. One, you will not grow in your spiritual life if you do not read God's word and pray. And Give and share your faith and those kind of things. Now, God doesn't love you more if you do those things. You don't earn your salvation. It's not behavior-based. But you will not grow unless you are practicing your worldview, unless you're practicing your relationship with God, unless you're pursuing a personal relationship with God. And so sometimes students feel, and we all feel distant from God and have spiritual doubt because we're not growing. Hmm. We're not engaging God's Word. We're not showing up in community. We're not giving. We're not involved with the local church. You know, we're kind of trying to do this thing on our own without growing our faith. And then the other way is sometimes we experience spiritual doubt because we have sin in our life where we are, we're, we're literally breaking God's law. And sin is not just brokenness. It's very common to talk about sin as brokenness. It is. Sin breaks things. But sin is ultimately about rebellion and about wanting to do our own thing and wanting our way and wanting to be king. And so, a lot of times with students, and especially in our, our hyper-sexualized culture, the most debilitating of, this, of those sins is sexual sin of some form or fashion. As I've worked with students for a long time now, the shame and guilt that come from that paralyze so many students, so many of you. And so you need to know first, if you're a follower of Jesus, confess it. There's now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's Romans 8.1. But also, you need to find a way to break free from those traps of sin, because the enemy is going to just use that with you and whisper shame in one ear and guilt in the other, and just take you out of profitable ministry and helping others. Mm -hmm. So you need to repent and grow like we all do. But those are things to watch out for. So three kinds of doubts, intellectual, spiritual, and um, emotional. And I go into more detail in the book, Welcome to College, on how to kind of navigate it. But I, that's one of my favorites, because I think it's something that's so common to the experience of us all, but especially during the student teenage years, when we're really trying to kick the tires on this thing, okay, am I really going to follow Jesus? Am I really going to bank my life on this thing and, and be a part of it and actually get involved with the mission? And so I think navigating doubt is massively important. So that, so that would be one of them. Mm -hmm. That's good. What's an example of a student or two who has read your book that you know of and applied some of the things you talk about and really flourished as a result? Or, or it could have been in a seminar you did on these topics, but the point is, took these things you're writing about to heart and applied them and, and, and benefited from it. A couple, a couple thoughts come to mind. Um, one, I remember getting, a, getting, a, getting an email from a student who was at Clemson years back and used Welcome to College, and there's discussion questions in the back, and was growing, led a Bible study, used the discussion questions to lead a group. And was actually just using that to read with people and to say, okay, this was helpful to me. We're going to do it together. Ah. You know, I get to disciple a lot of students through Impact 360 and be a part of their faith journey. I get to disciple a couple of guys right now who are at different schools. One of them is at a big state school right now. He is putting these into practice. We're talking about 
everything from the intellectual challenges he's facing to how do you help somebody understand and read the Bible better who's never really tried to do that before? And there's a chapter on how do you read the Bible? Mm-hmm. And so or how do you share your faith? What does it look like to be filled with the Holy Spirit and, and confess sin and be empowered by the Spirit? Not some weird kind of, you know, like fantastical way that sometimes people envision all that to be. And I mean, the, the, the caricatures out there is what I mean by that. Mm-hmm. But just like, how, what does basic spiritual life look like and how do you grow? And so seeing students going, yeah, I was able to help somebody navigate their doubts. Or yeah, I was able to talk to my professor about how ro- all roads don't lead to God. Or I was able to help this friend of mine recognize that, you know, the, the God of Islam is very different than the God of Christianity. And I talk about those things in the book. So it's been really fun to see that these things are accessible but they really resonate with students because this is navigating right where they're at. I mean, these are issues you will face parents. If you're listening to this, uh, I'd encourage you. I've had a lot of parents come back and say, we bought a copy of welcome to college for us and for our kids during high school. And we just went through it with them. And we just talked about different topics over dinner or use questions, Mm. whatever it looks like. If I can help tee that up for you all to have more productive conversations or for you, as a student to make disciples who make disciples on your campus or get plugged in a local church, mm-hmm. these things are, are very useful and very actionable and students are putting them into practice all over the country, which is exciting to hear. Mm, that's good. But how about the parent who, who buys this book for his or her child and the kid won't read it? How could the parent use this uh, to still be helpful to his or her, or her child as they get ready for college? Absolutely. So, so having meals and dinner. So basically at that point, um, what I would do one, you could always incentivize it. So maybe they won't read it on their own, but maybe they want $200. They're like, Hey, this is valuable enough. You want that? We'll put this towards a car or a meal or whatever, whatever it is. You do the math, you figure out, but there are ways to incentivize things that provide conversations and who's, who knows what comes, comes from that. But if they're just like, nah, I'm not engaging, like, I don't want to read this, then you'll have to kind of take one of those topics. You're like, okay, of these topics in this book, and there's 40, 41 different chapters, 43 different chapters on all these things, I'd encourage you to maybe make a list of four or five that you think are probably most important for your child right now during this season of life, whatever their challenges, struggles, opportunities, life situation, you know them the best. And then I would just read and reread those chapters, and I would use questions to try to draw your son or daughter out. Like, I'm curious, you know, what's the latest conversation around sexuality and gender? Or like, what, is, what does that look like? Or pronouns? He's like, what do you think about that? I'm just curious. Why Should you use pronouns? Should you not? Mm. Why do you think? Now, as a parent, and this is important, and it's very hard, but it's very important. If we want our students and our kids to engage with us, then we can't freak out whenever they ask us and say stuff that A, we disagree with, or B, we know it's like, well, didn't I teach you better? Maybe, but that doesn't matter because at the end of the day, it's like we can be right or we can be helpful. You know, so at that point, it's like, okay, man, I'm not sure about that. Well, tell me more about why you think that way. You know, I'm sure you've talked about the Columbo questions and Greg Kokel and tactics. So any form of the question, what do you mean by that? Help them define their terms. And how did you come to that conclusion or what reasons do you have for that? Those two questions not in a badgering sort of way, not like you're cross-examining somebody on the witness stand, but just in a conversational way. I guess when you when you say the word God, I'm just curious, what, what do you mean by that? Tell me more about that. Mm-hmm. What picture comes into your mind? Uh, what do you think about Jesus? You know, it's like, well, why? Or, or do you think Jesus might know what he's talking about? Why or why not? Or when your friend says they ought to be able to use their pronoun, 
Why, where do you think that comes from? Why is that so important? Because you're going to want to draw them into conversation. So you're going to need to get fluent in those chapters that, that are those topics and then be able to deploy that in a conversation with questions. And so that's what that's probably going to look like, um, not only with, with some of your kids normally, but also as you have opportunity to serve in a local church or help minister or mentor or disciple, those same skills, coworkers, you can transfer those all the way across the board as well. Hmm. That's really helpful. Thanks, Jonathan. Yeah. Hey, you shared earlier just a minute ago, and I asked you about some success stories where students applied some of these things and flourished. How about some cautionary tales? Can you share some stories of problems students face when ignoring or maybe just not knowing the truths you're discussing in this book? Yeah, for sure. Um, a couple of them. One is that they go off to college or even in high school and they don't pay attention to who they're around and spending all their time with. Mm. Proverbs 13, 20 says, he who walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools suffers harm. And so our friends and your friends determine the direction of your life in many ways. Um, because what happens, especially during the teenage years, if you, if you were to draw two circles, kind of a smaller circle and a bigger circle, the smaller circle put, is it true? And in the bigger circle, do I belong? What happens during this season is the do I belong question is going to feel a lot bigger to you than the is it true question. Hmm. And so what's going to happen, and I've seen this happen year after year, I've seen it happen in dating relationships with people, I've seen it happen in students, they find somewhere they belong with people that don't share their worldview and following Jesus at all. And it feels good to be loved and cared for and pursued and included. So therefore, their worldview shifts about what's true to the group of where they belong. Mm. That's a very common view. On the inverse of that, though, imagine the power when you take those two circles and then you put them on top of each other, where you've got people around you who are wise, but also pursuing what's true. Another thing to watch out for is thinking that just because you went to a youth group or raised in a Christian home or even went to a Christian school, that you're just going to be ready to deal with challenges and that you can talk about your faith if it's never been tested. And this is why we're so um, passionate about this at Impact 360, where we not just teach about stuff, but actually give students the opportunity to do and practice. Because there's a big difference on checking a box on a quiz. Yeah, Christians believe in the Trinity, check. Then to talking to a Muslim friend or a Mormon friend who's persuasive, maybe knows the Bible better than you do. And all of a sudden you're like, wait a second. Hmm, I don't know what to think about that. Or at the very least, I don't know how to talk about what I think about that. Mm -hmm. So that that's another thing that just because you've gone in a, in a very comfortable Christian environment, so to speak, that it's battle tested and ready. Um, and so that's why I'm, I'm a big proponent of doing things to put yourself outside of your spiritual comfort zone to test those things and to grow and to challenge and to think. That's another one. Uh, last one would be, I mean, there's more, but Run away. So one of my favorite verses for students is 2 Timothy 2.22. Lead the evil desires of youth and pursue faith, love, righteousness, and peace alongside those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. In that passage, you've got three beautiful things. Run away from evil desires of youth. Notice it doesn't say youth. Youth's great. Evil desires of youth, the things that are a departure from God's good ways and design, right? Flee that stuff. Run away from it sexuality, all that stuff outside of God's good design, run away quickly. And then run run toward peace and, and shalom and grace and goodness and truth and righteousness as God defines it. Run towards that, run away from that, and then run with people who are committed to the same thing. 
So that's a recipe for flourishing as a college student. And then the opposite would be a train wreck is coming, even if not immediately. I know that like the book of Ecclesiastes in seven and eight, chapter seven and eight, talk about this. Just because the consequences for sin don't come right away, it doesn't mean they aren't going to come. Hmm. Sin is always fun for a season. Otherwise, we wouldn't do it. We would enjoy it. But there's always a reality coming behind it. You know, that's why Galatians 6 says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. We will reap what we sow. And so as a student, that's vitally important. It's not you can't do these things in quiet and silent and invisible and pretend they're not going to bear fruit someday. And so the sowing reaping principle, who you're running with, what are you running from, what are you running toward, the wise relationships, things like that. And then making sure you've tested your faith and grown a little bit, come to an experience like Impact 360 or something else where, where you can kind of grow and challenge and, and go deeper so that you're ready for those. So those would be three probably off the top of my head, just that I would say kind of a cautionary tale to be, be aware of as you're navigating high school and also heading into the college years. Okay. Appreciate it. Yeah. Well, Jonathan, as we draw to a close, is there anything else you want to make sure we touch on? Yeah. And so I would just encourage students um, that you're listening to this, that you would just recognize that there is a better way to live out there than our culture is is offering you. God offers a better way and maybe even a better way than you've even experienced or seen maybe growing up in your church or family. Um, I don't know all the situations. I'm not trying to pick on anybody, but sometimes our vision of the Christian life is too small. And you need to know that God made you for a purpose and that God desires a personal relationship with you. He wants to equip you to follow him and make disciples and to live out your influence and your gifting and your experiences and passion and calling all of that for a lifetime. And that's the great adventure. That's the best way to live. It's actually true. It's not just wishful thinking. And you can know it to be true and you can invite other people into it. And so my encouragement and challenge would be, and I hope Welcome to College really helps you with this as well. Don't fall into the trap of just playing Christian. Check a box, go to church, done. You know, okay, I'm doing the Christian thing. No, it's either true or it's not. It's either real or it's not. And if it's true, it changes everything. And it should restructure, realign our priorities in our life. And that is where you are created to find meaning and purpose in life. And so I just want to invite you into that. So if you're a student, Hopefully you're going to see those themes in the in, in the book, but just that the gospel is true, that God's invited you to more. The resurrection is a reality. We have hope beyond the grave. This life is not all there is, and we have a vital mission to work together on. And so you're needed. Uh, you're invited into those things. Your friends need you. Your family needs you. The people around you need you. And so don't make the mistake of just checking the Christian box. So that would be my big picture kind of encouragement. Well, this has been so helpful. You have given us uh, a lot to think about. You've, I think, touched on some of the high points in the book. I encourage listeners to read the book, go to your website, uh, see what Impact 360 is doing, check that out. Uh, any last closing comments before we, we wrap this up? Yeah, no, this is just vital. It's important that we're doing this work, so I appreciate the opportunity to be on. And again, um, as one last thing for, for a parent, if you're looking for a resource I wrote, um, a course. It's on my website, jonathanmorrow.org. It's just simply called Five Things Every Teenager Needs to Build a Lasting Faith. And so it re- kind of gives you an opportunity to clarify what matters, to gain confidence, and build a plan that's specific to you and your family. So I've got a 100-page PDF in there, videos, accessible, the whole thing. So that's just five things every teenager needs to build a lasting faith. And that's a great compliment to Welcome to College to kind of build a plan and, and to be able to be conversant and kind of up to speed on a lot of those topics 
as we try to raise our kids to, to flourish in today's post-Christian culture. Fabulous. Well, thanks, Jonathan. This has been really helpful. I appreciate your service to the kingdom and taking some time to talk with me. Awesome. It's always a pleasure. Good to see you. That brings us to the end of this edition of the College Faith Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this conversation at the intersection of Christian conviction and higher education. Be sure to check out today's show notes at collegefaith.net slash podcasts, where you can find more information and links to the resources we discussed. If you found this podcast helpful, please help spread the word by liking my College Faith Facebook page at facebook.com slash collegefaith and pass this show on to others who may enjoy hearing our conversation. Please do visit our sponsor, Global Scholars, to help equip Christian professors to be salt and light for Christ on their campuses. Until next time, this is Stan Wallace encouraging you to love the Lord your God with both heart and mind during the university years and beyond.